You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, and with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Our guest today is a member of our own board, and that is uh, Major General Oleg Kalugin of the KGB, now retired. Uh, Major uh, General Kalugin was the youngest Major General in the KGB. He was part of the reform movement in the Soviet Union, came to this country, and has since then become an American citizen. And we're here to talk about the arrest of 10, actually 11, uh, members of a Russian spy network last uh, two weeks ago, actually, on Sunday the 27th of June. Uh, and at that time, uh, there was a, a complaint filed in the Southern District of New York, uh, which provided many details about the work of the network, the names of the people in the network, and the complaint alleged that the members of the network were, in fact, Russian citizens and not Americans, though they were posing as Americans. Since then, the press has been filled with stories about what the network was really up to, about the lives of these individuals as they embedded themselves in American society and suburbia. So we thought that given all the interviews that have been done, that would be interesting for you, our listeners, to hear the words from General Kalugin about his thoughts on the network, uh, the work that they did, his evaluation of some of the features of that network. So, uh, Oleg, thank you so much for being with us today. And the first question I'm going to ask you is, when did you hear about the arrests and what was your reaction? I heard it on the radio. I listened to NPR regularly, news programs, and uh, I was stunned when I heard that. I didn't expect, uh, first of all, the number of spies arrested. This is the first time in my uh, experience in the United States. Uh, there were individuals uh, detained, arrested, but to have uh, 10 men and women uh, charged with espionage, or at least, uh, well, it was not exactly espionage, but uh, 
uh, but uh, to me, it was a, a major surprise, uh, and it looked like uh, something extraordinary and unbelievable, uh, just like from a f- fiction of sorts. Ten guys in the United States illegals. It never happened in my uh, previous life as a professional. In the old days, we never had so many so ineffective uh, illegals in the country, in this country. Oleg, the term illegal is a little confusing for for many of us in this country. Um, My recollection from from the CIA that illegals was a very, very special kind of of, uh, uh, Soviet intelligence asset they were trained, highly trained, often very compartmented, and they were inserted into this country and into other countries as singletons, maybe one here, maybe a couple there. And they were like sleeper agents. They might not do anything right away. They might be used to handle a sensitive case or maybe in time of war commit sabotage. And the fact that this was a network, and that's the FBI term, was astonishing, and that they all knew each other. What was your reaction to hearing that these people were described as as illegals, because you remember the old days. What did you think of it, that it was not only illegals, but that they were networked like that? Well, it really stunned me as a sign of uh, um, low professionalism in the current Russian intelligence service. There is no need to keep an army of illegals in the United States. In my time, in the worst years of the Cold War, we did have two or three illegals, but they had a very specific task, primarily timed to a potential military conflict between the United States and the USSR. For instance, to blow uh, power, electric power grids in the country or poison water supplies in Washington area. But that would happen only if the war was imminent. Otherwise, they would just lie low. They would never show any signs of existence. And uh, there was only one man in the KGB residency. Uh, We had several lines, political line, counterintelligence, science and technology. Uh, And one guy who was in charge of the illegals, his job was to keep general a sort of a view of un- occasionally sent messages to make sure that the guys are still okay, that they are alive, and they have no specific problems. Uh, so um, illegal represented the so-called uh, Department S, uh, I mean, which was a fairly big one, but totally isolated from the rest of the Soviet intelligence community. They had their own... Uh, uh, training groups. Uh, they had their own small, not a school, but a base where they would teach guys to use all these uh, uh, special methods of communications. Well, I also had a course in shortwave radio and uh, all sorts of um, uh, hidden, I mean, uh, 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 writing in uh, uh, invisible ink or something like that, but we never used it in practice. Those guys were supposedly ready to use that on their just in regular work. Whether they did or not, I do not know. But anyway, the size of this uh, illegal uh, network in the United States at the time when Russia officially 
And America accepted that offer to work together for peace in the world and established a kind of uh, a rapport between the two administrations. Uh, to me, it looks like an uh, aberration, uh, financial um, and human just wastes. That's it. Well, let me just add for, the, for our listeners, residency, the term you used, that is the equivalent of a CIA station. It was your overseas office. The chief of station, in, in the case of the KGB, was the resident. So just to clarify that, could you give us an example of an illegal, or, or let me put it this way, of the KGB's attempted use of an illegal to handle, uh, say, a sensitive asset in this country during your time? I know one specific case of uh, Robert Lipka. Uh, he worked for uh, the National Security Agency, actually, as a soldier. And uh, he was a volunteer. He came to the Russian embassy one day and brought uh, a, a whole bag of classified documents. And from that moment on, he would be handled as a valuable source and we would meet regularly, but again, from the uh, position of the Russian embassy, undercover, I mean KGB. At some point, uh, three years later, despite the fact that he was a good source and there were no problems regarding his security or anything, uh, the Moscow headquarters said, uh, well, he's too valuable a source to maintain relations through diplomatic channels. We will transfer him to the illegal network, which was operational in the, in the United States. Well, that was the, uh, our boss's decision. How could we resist? Well, from what I learned later, uh, for whatever reason, maybe strictly human, but Robert Lipka could not uh, work with the guys from the illegal network. And after 18 months or so, uh, I mean, as an operator, he just quit and would never just to get in touch with the Soviet intelligence. Maybe it was just a human factor. Uh, there was a total uh, difference of characters. But anyway, they could not handle the men. That one case I know of sort of uh, Well, quite that was well. interesting, though, because that's, that was our understanding in, in CIA and FBI. The illegals were used, perhaps, to handle a very sensitive case. Robert Lipka worked where when he volunteered to work for the KGB? Where was he employed? Oh, he was a, a, a soldier at the National Security Agency, and his job was to destroy classified documents. Uh, but actually, instead of destroying them, they would uh, uh, stuff them in a brown bag, a big one, and bring it over to one of the uh, wooded areas in Maryland and live with it at, behind some tree. And our intelligence guys under cover of the embassy would pick it up, well, some half an hour later, and then leave in a different place but close, uh, some 5,000 bucks as a reward for his contribution. It's wonderful to hear these stories because we're now hearing about laptops on their own uh, area a network and use of Wi-Fi and, and, uh, and other similar things. So it's good to hear an old-fashioned story about people putting documents in a brown bag and hiding them behind a tree. But it worked. It and did. He was a successful actually, spy. actually, John Walker's case, yes. his family, which I also supervised, operated in a similar manner. We would meet very uh, once a year, perhaps, 
The rest would be done through these hiding places uh, in some uh, areas of Virginia. He preferred uh, Virginia since he worked. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to put in for, in the for Navy. Our, <laughs> our listeners. Uh, John Walker was one of the most famous cases of, uh, of, uh, of the Cold War. Uh, he provided uh, millions of, of code keys from the U.S. Navy uh, and was, was later arrested. And, and uh, he's in prison for life. Uh, at the time, Oleg was the deputy resident or deputy chief here in Washington and directed the operations in that case. It was one of the most damaging cases against our country. Oleg, let's just look back again at this. By the way, uh, let yes. me add, John Walker managed to build, build uh, just a circle of family and friends. Uh, I believe all five of them were arrested by the FBI eventually. But he just uh, brought his son to this, that ring, his uh, friend, a couple of other guys. He tried to uh, recruit his daughter, but she declined. So it was really a family affair, but it was uh, it lasted for nearly 20 years. That's something. No illegals were involved, none. No, it was, it was a very important case. Oleg, there were several things that come up in this case. One is having these so-called illegals, because they were here under another name, put into this network, and it would appear to be they were in touch with each other. Uh, I don't think we've ever seen anything like that. Did this strike you as some people, some people have termed it, it, it appeared to be sloppy to them, uh, looking at, at their tradecraft they employed, uh, the fact uh, that they... They seem to be loosely in contact with... I mean, what was your assessment of these people as a spy ring? Well, you use the word sloppy, and I fully agree. When I heard about this case and uh, subsequently read this in the newspapers, I was stunned by unprofessionalism, by uh, lack of sophistication and intelligence matters. They really looked like amateurs. And... Uh, to have them arrested, we'll see what will happen in the end. But uh, to me, uh, it's uh, probably uh, an illustration to the current state of the Russian intelligence, uh, well, run by um, unprofessionals, I mean, on the very high level. And the illegals, uh, which at some point were viewed as impractical, too expensive, and potentially dangerous for diplomatic relations with the country, I mean, which they spied on. This uh, element of intelligence have been lately revived. And honestly, to me, it's, that does not correspond to the spirit of time. So I think it's a waste of time, money, and human resources. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Well, let me just ask you, Oleg, I'd like to talk about what they were doing and their product, their intelligence product, but let me just talk for a moment 
about how they communicated with the Russian intelligence officers in the Russian mission to the UN. They used some classic espionage techniques, brush passes, invisible writing, uh, cached material, and they used some modern things, the laptops that could uh, be used to somebody sitting in Starbucks to somebody in a van, the steganography, the hidden messages. That sort of communications, covert communications, if you will, is designed to work. That is, to keep public casual observers seeing that you are in touch with Russians or Russian intelligence officers. And I think as we see it in hindsight, it looks like sort of an old movie. Or why would they use these techniques? But in fact, they were under the view of the FBI from the beginning. And no service could carry out those techniques with the, with someone like the FBI over them so closely. I mean, going into their cars and their computers, knowing everything about them. So I think there's a tendency for us to perhaps underestimate, you know, the, the fact that they were doing things covertly. They were, they were doing things, I think, correctly. They just didn't know that something or somebody tipped off the FBI, which then covered them like a blanket. Well, we do not know yet the real reasons of uh, the disastrous end of this uh, group of uh, Russian spies. Uh, but uh, let me tell you, um, as illegals, uh, uh, they were not supposed to communicate in the manner they did. To me, it was truly something astonishing. Though I never worked for the illegals, but from my training, I do know that they should not group themselves. I mean, uh, they have to be isolated cells, maybe two, three in each. Uh, and the guy who uh, is in charge, of, well, in my time, it was a Soviet diplomat. He represented uh, Directorate S of the illegals. And he was the man who would uh, oversee several cells which were operational in the United States. But to group them together, in, I mean, almost a dozen and I think it's a violation of the old rule of the intelligence, particularly for the illegals. It's a sign of, a sign of uh, I would say, ignorance or intel. I mean, lack of uh, understanding of the specifics of that, you know, job. And to me, it's a, uh, what a reflection of the current state of the Russian intelligence in general. Let me just turn to their work. And, and ask you, <clears throat> what is it that you think they were trying to do? What do you believe their assignment was as, as, a, as a network of illegals? According to the published reports, uh, their main mission was to find someone uh, who would be willing, ready, under their control, to penetrate the Department of State and probably some other federal agencies. Well, uh, it's a job, which is part of the intelligence operations, but they keep uh, an army of illegals to do that, to me, is truly, as I said before, a waste of money, human resources, and totally, uh, I would say, disgraceful for, uh, for the country, which was proud to have a, a, one of the top intelligence services in the world. Well, do you think, uh, now, if we look at the network, uh, we learned from the complaint, from the FBI complaint, that they were they did not have strong legends. They did not have strong personal 
cover stories so that they individually could not apply for a job in the State Department or CIA or the FBI. Um, but we also see the center, that is the headquarters of the, of the, of the SVR, um, pressing them to meet policymakers. Uh, somebody met this fellow in finances. Do you think that perhaps one of their primary roles was to be spotters, was to be what we in America call talent scouts, to look for people who might be senior in the financial world, political world, scientific world, and to try and spot people and assess them and look for people who might look open to recruitment. That is, people uh, perhaps with a problem with alcohol, uh, a messy divorce, uh, maybe disillusioned with America. And maybe their role was to spot those people, report it to the center, and then a experienced intelligence officer could come in and make some sort of recruitment approach. Is it possible that their role was just limited to that? Well, uh, I uh, well agree that probably that was their main purpose, to spot potential uh, uh, people who would be uh, willing to uh, find job in the uh, United States federal government. But to keep 10 people for that specific job uh, and people who know each other, uh, that to me is a major violation of the rule of the illegal uh, intelligence operations. Even in the, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, intelligence divisions uh, which operated under cover of diplomatic or other trade institutions, uh, we were sometimes not supposed to know that this guy was a KGB fellow because he represented a different line of work. Well, of course, everyone knew counterintelligence guys. They would be uh, omnipresent. But, say, guys from the illegal directorate, they would keep a very low profile. They would never say, I, I'm in charge of the illegal cells in this country. Well, in political intelligence, some people had so-called deep cover. Uh, they would not be even known to the political branch of the intelligence. And that would happen in the final years of my work in the intelligence when uh, they would send people, say, to uh, the trade mission in uh, Washington uh, under cover of an uh, well, official of the trade mission. And I would not know unless I have to that he was a KGB guy. Only the chief of station would know other guys would not know. He was not supposed to come to the uh, residentura or the uh, residence of the KGB under the embassy. He would be met somewhere by the guy who was in charge of these special agents. They were not known to everyone. And in case something happened, a traitor or a uh, you know, mole inside or a defector, uh, some of these intelligence officers would never be exposed because they were not known generally. Uh, that would happen later in my career. Uh, at the time when I came in 1960, I knew every single individual from the political side and counterintelligence and science and technology. We had very small premises in the old Russian embassy on the 16th Street, so it is really hard to hide anywhere. But later things changed, and they would keep autonomy, I mean, and would not uh, uh, reveal their uh, identities and names to other members of the intelligence, only the seniors 
years. I mean, the chiefs knew about it. So you're, you're even within. We're even within. The right. residency. Yeah. You were very tightly compartmented exactly, exactly. into what people were allowed so to know. So in the illegal, among the illegals, that's really, I was amazed to see such lack of discipline and lack of professionalism. How could they know each other, know that they belong to the same network? That's amazing. But to me, it's a sign of something happened to the Russian intelligence, and I'm not surprised. I've been following the decay of the organization over the past years, but uh, this is another proof, I'd say. Well, you and I and, and everyone associated with the museum has been following the events very closely, and uh, I'll ask you now, were you surprised by the swap, how quickly it came about and the nature of it? I was indeed surprised by the uh, uh, pace of that uh, exchange. Normally, you would expect months of negotiations, uh, sometimes behind the backs, over diplomatic channels, through special connections, I mean, wherever. But in this case, it was remarkable. Just I was amazed and pleasantly surprised that both presidents of the United States and Russia found common language and made a decision. And I think everyone in the intelligence services, at least in Russia, were just happy. Well, maybe well, some people in the United States, uh, 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 I mean, law enforcement, uh, were not particularly happy about that. But, well, anyway, we'll find out later about that. Well, the reports we're seeing uh, are to the effect that the initial contact and the proposal of the swap was at the level of the head of CIA, Director Panetta, and the head of the SVR. And then, of course, it would go through our National Security Council and, and it would require the approval of the president. Well, that's on another side, on the other hand. It's, it's a, probably a sign of this new spirit in relations between the two countries. Because uh, the heads of state may say a lot of platitudes and nice words about cooperation and eat cheeseburgers together, but intelligence services, you know, operate behind the scenes, and once they fail, they be, may be punished severely, according to the laws of the country where they operated. Oleg, as, as uh, we look at this extraordinary development, uh, how quickly it happened, uh, I, I certainly agree with you. It's a reflection of the relations between the governments and, and uh, their desire to get on with the improved relationship. What do you think, what sort of future do you think, what sort of reception will these 10 illegals have when they go home to Moscow? First thing they will do, uh, they will give them, I believe, a warm reception. That would be on the official side. Second, uh, there will be debriefing. They will want to find out what happened, what, who uh, was uh, the source of information. So they would uh, talk individually to every single member of that group and try to later compare their you know, evidence and all information and find the culprit, I mean, the one who was uh, stood behind. Well, but in the long run, uh, they may be portrayed as sort of heroes of Russia for the public relations and maintaining the spirit in the, inside the intelligence community of uh, not forgiveness but understanding that's a very important message. If I were in the shoes of my, uh, I mean, former I mean, or current Russian uh, intelligence chiefs and security chiefs, I would uh, uh, make them look more like uh, victims and heroes, both victims of American, I mean, uh, 
absurd uh, system which suspects everyone who has different views. I mean, make it an old propaganda style. But uh, on the other hand, provide them with very uh, warm, I mean, uh, human uh, reception so they would not at some point travel to Europe, Bulgaria, or other nice place, and then go back to the United States and say the truth about what happened. So uh, I think the Russians should, if I were in their you know, place, I would treat them uh, in a respectable manner so that they not want to redefect. I think one of the most striking things about this, uh, I don't know what to call it, a, a space-age spy swap or a new-age spy swap, but we're trading Russians for Russians, for heaven's sakes. I'm very struck by the fact that the uh, that the uh, Mr. Putin's or Mr. Medvedev's uh, administration is willing to trade Russians who were uh, accused of espionage and in some cases admitted uh, guilt. That, of course, uh, is open to conjecture. Um, but they're, they're willing to trade people three of whom were Russian intelligence officers, one of whom was a scientist, to the United States for these illegals. But that's a sign of a new attitude in Russia. And in a sense, uh, I think it's, uh, well, quite uh, extraordinary. Uh, because in my days and subsequent years, there was no, never such a treatment of spies. Russian spies, foreign spies, uh, to see the guys who were sentenced to, uh, you know, 15 years in jail, uh, to see them released and deported to the country they had spied for, that's something extraordinary, a total novel thing. I think that's quite extraordinary, and I think uh, we should end in this, on this note. Um, there may be one or two things I'd like to get into again with you. Perhaps we'll do another spy cast. We'll hear what has happened to the... Uh, the Illegals Network, back That's in right. Moscow. Uh, we'll hear what is happening to the four Russians who've come here. Um, I think given that the countries are trying to downplay this, I think there'll be very little publicity. Uh, eventually, maybe they'll be able to go on a talk show or something like that. But I think in the immediate future, they won't. Oleg, it's been terrific talking to you about Thank this. Thank you. Thank you um, for the invitation. Uh, there are such fascinating elements in all of it. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for Thank you. sharing your thoughts with us. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast, uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.